scripture lesson today comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 13. I'll begin at reading at verse 10, read through verse 17, this from the Common English Bible. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not stand up straight. When he saw her, Jesus called her to him and said, Woman, you are set free from your sickness. He placed his hands on her, and she straightened up at once and praised God. The synagogue leader, incensed that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded, There are six days during which work is permitted. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord replied, Hypocrites! Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he said these things, all his opponents were put to shame, but all those in the crowd rejoiced at all the extraordinary things he was doing. Here ends this reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Now, I don't feel that old. Well, at least today. And yet, when I reminisce on how my family spent our Sundays together when I was growing up as a child, I'll be honest, it sounds like it could have happened, as they say, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Sundays were for church, for family, and of course, for food. And it wasn't just my Central Texas family. It seemed this was the pattern across a wide region of the southern states uh, during the 1970s and 80s, and honestly, probably before. Shopping for groceries would have been a bit too close to doing actual manual labor for my family on Sundays. So mom and dad would either plan to go out to dinner after church, or better yet, mom would cook up a Sunday feast, which would usually either consist of roast or some variation, or better still, fried chicken. And if I was really lucky, her jalapeno cornbread would be involved. It was extremely unusual, but in the rare case that where my mom or dad had overlooked an ingredient that was absolutely essential to this big Sunday meal, and I do mean essential, one of them would venture out to the local H-E-B or Piggly Wiggly grocery stores near our house. I usually tagged along, and it was usually my dad. He was the normal uh, designated person that was to go get whatever we forgot, you know, that person. And of course, I like spending time with my dad, but to just keep it real, what I was not so secretly hoping was that my presence and sheer cuteness would convince him that he should buy me either a piece of candy or perhaps some baseball cards as an impulse purchase, and it usually happened right near the cash register at the end of our trip. Now, I would have much rather had a straight-up toy, like a model car or a yo-yo or something exciting like that, but because of the blue laws, these exciting toys were kept off limits on Sundays at the store. At one store, they even draped what looked like to me bright yellow crime scene barrier tape back and forth in front of the toys as if to say, come here and we'll kill you, you know, if you try to buy this. 
Why? Because it was Sunday. Apparently there was to be no laughing, breathing, or having fun on Sundays. Now there are still some things you can't buy on Sundays, but not nearly as many. Liquor stores are closed in many states, including Oklahoma, but last time I checked, you could buy toys. All of these sorts of customs, you see, they stem from this idea about people's Sabbath, and really, in particular, how to obey or honor, if you will, this third of the Ten Commandments. You know those little things. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right. But why? What made a day of the week holy to the people of Israel? Well, Exodus connects the Sabbath observance to creation and says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it, made it holy, in other words. The book of De Deuteronomy gives a different reason. It says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Hmm. The Sabbath, you see, started out to be a gift, a designated time where one could recharge. And it started out in a fairly positive light, but it quickly worked its way into a bigger ball of wax, so to speak. And what started out as a gift turned into a rigid set of sub-laws and all sorts of restrictions that grew out of this with what was considered work and what was considered play and what was considered restful and what was considered, well, gray area and all the stuff in between. In many areas of life, not just the toy aisle, had yellow crime scene tape marking them off limits for the Sabbath. It was meant to keep it holy to many. I think it's more than safe to say that Jesus had his fair share of issues with this sort of practice of Sabbath and understanding of it. He and the disciples were always getting into trouble, you see, with the religious figures of their day for not properly observing the Sabbath. Sabbath conflicts come up, in fact, in the Gospel according to Luke, which we read from tonight. Just in this Gospel, Sabbath conflicts come up four separate times. Three of these Sabbath controversies involve healing on the Sabbath, just like tonight's lesson. In today's text from Luke, Jesus is teaching at a synagogue. He's, guess what he's teaching about? He's teaching all sorts of things, but when is he doing it? He's doing it on the Sabbath, and he sees a woman who is so crippled that she's completely stooped over. She's unable to straighten her spine up completely and stand erect. She's been suffering like this, we're told in the story, for 18 years. Now, it's interesting to me that she does not approach Jesus. Did you notice that? She didn't ask him for anything. The truth is, she didn't have to. The minute Jesus sees her suffering, he calls her over and says, Woman, you are set free from your sickness. And he lays his hands on her. He physically touches her. Now, let me hit the pause button for a minute. Okay? Okay? Many Christians have been programmed that they must make interpretive decisions right away on Bible stories that sound like this. 
You are certainly welcome to your own convictions about whether one should take this story literally and it historically happened. If a person would have been there like they would have been today with a smartphone, you know, uh, recording it all and posting it, you know, on Facebook Live or YouTube, it, whether it happened just this way. Or if you prefer a more metaphorical or symbolic understanding of these types of miracles, good on you. But we need to remind ourselves that regardless of the interpretive decisions that we make about sto healing stories and miracle stories like this, that we can't lose sight of the bigger, more pressing questions than how we're going to dot our interpretive I's or cross our interpretive T's. We need to remind ourselves that there are ways, uh, questions that we should ask as modern people who seek to follow the way of Jesus that might be challenging to our own way of life. I need to remind you at this point, the Bible was actually never intended to settle conversations, but rather to start conversations. So when people use the Bible to say, see there, I told you, they're abusing it. That's not the way it should work. The scripture is alive because we work it out. We let it springboard new conversations based on older conversations, and we wrestle with this thing that we call the Spirit to discern the best way forward. So I want to encourage you to push on past this binary way of thinking. You either have to swallow this hook, line, sinker, literally, or you just reject everything and have to choose it metaphorically. Whatever. Whatever. I want to direct you to some more pressing, relevant questions. How do people today experience healing? How do people today experience wholeness? And since Jesus isn't physically around anymore, how do Christian people in the tradition and name and ministry of Jesus, how do we offer a human, compassionate, healing touch to those who are hurting? How do we recognize those in our paths who are even hurting and in need of restoration? To put it another way, how can we be the hands and feet of Christ in our world today? That is a much more pressing question. And if we spend time trying to rationalize everything and modernize everything, we're doing something the scriptures, I don't believe, were ever intended to do, trying to settle these things. Instead, we should let it stir us up to faithful action now. So now, strictly speaking from the story, Jesus sets this woman free from the torture and imprisonment of her own disabled body. And he might not be able to control what she does from this point forward in life, but he addresses her greatest obstacle as he sees it. And now she at least has a shot at a new way of life. A life free from this traumatizing pain and the shame that accompanied it, which we'll talk more about in this culture, and the isolation that was heaped on her by the society in which she lived for having this type of defliction and disease. Jesus points out and, and calls her a proud daughter of Abraham, an heir of God's promise, and a participant in God's covenant. And he touches her. He gives her wholeness and health and a chance at real peace. But notice in the story that she didn't have to do anything. It was all initiated by Jesus, and it was all a gift of pure grace, something she didn't ask for or deserve. And did you notice what happens when Jesus touches the woman in the story? She stands up, the author makes sure we notice, straight and tall for the first time in 18 years, and she begins... To praise God. She gives thanks for this unexpected, wonderful, unbelievable gift of her health and her wholeness. Isn't it wonderful? Well, not everyone in the story feels the same way. Did you notice that part? 
The ruler of the synagogue cannot rejoice or, or give thanks for this act of healing because, you know, he only notices the fact that Jesus has done some kind of manual labor and it happens to be the Sabbath. But as many people, well, let's be honest, especially religious people tend to do, this leader of the synagogue, he chooses not to be direct in his communication with Jesus. If he were from the South, he would practice good old-fashioned Southern hospitality like some of us do. He'd go home and have roast Jesus for lunch. And he'd say, bless his heart. Bless his heart. You know, I know he tried, but he's just so misdirected. These whippersnappers today that think they know the religious game, they're just off. They need to hang out with us a little bit more before they get so testy and start to push the boundaries on all this stuff. You can just kind of hear it going down. And he, and he criticizes Jesus for this action. But I'll be honest, we do it. We do it. We have our sacred cows of the church. It, it might not be as widely practiced as something like the Sabbath, but we've got turf wars that go on here and elsewhere in the church. And we can't really criticize this guy too much for being a stickler for the rules because that was his job, right? That was what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to enforce the rules. But, you know, there were some exceptions to the Sabbath rules. Some have argued that, that maybe this woman's condition was so pressing that it would have been acceptable as an exception. But if you think about it, she'd been in this condition for 18 years of her life. Could Jesus have waited one more day to heal her? Well, of course. Of course he could have. But, you know, Jesus doesn't have a lot of patience with... He didn't have a lot of patience with religious or legal systems that did not serve the needs of the most vulnerable citizens. Jesus was far more interested in healing the woman in this story because he saw her need. And, and Jesus never did anything for an individual. Now, this is important. I want you to remember this. Jesus never did anything for an individual like this woman without seeing how the individuals were connected to social, religious, and political systems of their day. This woman had real problems, and her problems were magnified by the ways that her society was conditioned to treat her in response to her ceremonially unclean medical condition. Most society members of her time, they believed that some relative of hers, probably her mom or dad or maybe herself, had done something. They, somebody somewhere had sinned. And therefore, this affliction on her body was basically divine punishment for the sin that either her or someone in her family had committed. This was the social norm. This was, quote, conventional wisdom for them. Now, before we scoff too much, I actually know plenty of Christians today who pray for things to be easy and smooth. I'm guilty sometimes. Oh, dear God, if it be your will, let it go smooth at work this week. And then the minute it doesn't, we begin wondering where we've stepped out of God's divine plan for the universe. Oh, before we scoff too much, there are still Christians who blame hurricanes on the people who get blasted by the hurricanes and say, well, the hurricane hit that city or the hurricane hit that state because somebody was sinful that lived there. And by sinful, usually they mean gay. Hogwash. Hogwash on all of this. 
And, and, you know, we should have the same impatience with legal or religious rules or systems or practices that press down on the top of another human being's dignity that Jesus had, and we should fight them. When, when they're pressing down, these systems are keeping someone from rising up, from standing up tall and straight and being the highest, tallest, truest, most authentic form of themselves. We should balk at it as well. And with Jesus as our example, we should walk up right to any person being bent down by the weight of, well, stupid beliefs or practices. Anyone being told, well, you're less than because, you know, you're not doing this properly. Oh, you're, you're less than because you're, you're the wrong color. You're less than because you're not rich enough. You're less than because of your gender or your sexual expression or, or your practices or who you are. Uh, you know, you're one of those people. And, and we should step right up and we should offer whatever strength we have, not only to helping the hurting person, but to remove and to shatter whatever social norm has been constructed that's holding them down and causing another person pain and suffering. Social norms like these are the unwritten rules. Sometimes they're written down. Sometimes they're not written down. But they're patterns of behavior or practices that are considered acceptable by a group or a society. And this, my friends, is where our church family has a unique opportunity. By our stubborn love, we embrace and envision a God who does not send hurricanes at anyone, but rather who bears with anyone in harm's way as the love that will not let us go. Here in this community of faith, we're striving to formulate some new norms of our own. For we believe that each and every person is of sacred worth without regard to sexual identity or gender expression or the color of your skin, or even if you're a former Baptist. <laughs> we believe that each person is of sacred worth. Full stop. Period. That's it. And therefore, we do some crazy things, like take some stands. And in this community, we confess that white supremacy is a lie. And that causing pain and causing people of color to be bent down by the evil weight and the lies of white supremacy uh, is not acceptable. And we seek to live into a new norm, one where equality becomes real and present reality. Now, the truth is we're far from perfect ourselves, but it remains our goal. It remains our driving vision, our beacon of light, a beacon of equality, like sitting on the hill, guiding us, compelling us, wooing us, leading us forward. Now, Jesus didn't say this in exact wording, but I think we can notice it in this story and in many other stories, the way that he acted, that what we tolerate, we perpetuate. And here in this fellowship, we will not tolerate anything less than a community of unconditional love and acceptance for all. And we're not satisfied to just create this kind of atmosphere here within our walls. We recognize that Jesus has called us as disciples to take that vision out into the real world, to leave this place and to be prepared to speak up and call out injustices wherever they see them, wherever we see them bending the backs of our neighbors under their weight, under the burdens of all this hogwash. Any rule, any system, any law, any practice, any norm that infringes on the unrestricted, full, complete, healthy, thriving personhood of another human being is not acceptable. This is where, dear people, you say amen. amen. Thank you. Just making sure you're awake. <laughs> Apartheid was legal. 
The Holocaust, for the most part, was completely legal. Slavery was legal. Colonialism was legal. And when something is legal, or even when something's practiced but not spelled out in writing, whether in written or unwritten practice within society, it's, it's not a matter of morality. It's a matter of power. And challenging social norms and practices because of our underlying belief that all human beings are created equally in God's sight and should be treated equally in God's sight as such is not for the faint of heart because when you go to challenge these sorts of things, others will most assuredly hate you for it. Others will most assuredly criticize you for it. Would you like to read my mail? It can guaranteed lead you to conflict. By the way, Jesus wasn't crucified because he was a nice guy that went out teaching love and acceptance for everybody, though I think those were his values. Jesus was crucified for challenging the social norms, the laws, the religious practices that did not serve in the best interest of all of the people, and they executed him. But Jesus challenged them fearlessly right up to his very death, and showed us how to live. And the way the Sabbath was being practiced, you see, in our text tonight, was no longer serving all of the people. It served some to the detriment of others, like this woman in Luke's story. And when you look around the church, and when you look around your workplace, and when you look around in your own families, when you look around in the wider community, the question this story must raise in well-meaning disciples of Jesus Christ are, where do I see people hurting? Where do I see suffering in this world? Where do you see people in pain? How can you ease their pain? Is there anything you can do? And how is this person I'm noticing that's in pain, how is their pain connected to a bigger picture? What's the root cause? Could there be other variables in this equation? That's the way Jesus looked at this woman's situation. Not only was she in pain, but she was the product of a broken system. And he challenged it while at the same time helping her rise and straighten and experience new life and healing. The truth is we may not always have the answers to every situation, but I believe that these are the kinds of questions Jesus calls us to ask. This is the kind of vision and the discernment that Jesus calls us to have. And the truth is we may not always be able to change the entire world. Certainly instantaneously that will never happen. But this does not mean we should ever stop dreaming of it. This does not mean we should ever stop striving for it. But here's the thing. Most of the time we may not be able to change the entire world. But listen. Sometimes the right thing to do is to change the world for one person entirely. And in so doing, we'll find clues to what led up to this point. So let's not give up helping people right under our very noses. And at the same time, let's not give up looking for root causes. And let's not quit offering our hand. And let's not quit asking hard questions. Sometimes we're called to be the one offering the healing through our compassion and our human touch, we're called to be Jesus, if you will, in this story for someone else. But we don't always have our act together, do we? Sometimes we, like the surprise woman that Jesus encountered, sometimes we need to be the ones who are offered that hand, who are offered that healing, 
when it's offered to us. Sometimes we need to be the surprised ones who get given a, a gift of unexpected compassion. We weren't looking for it. We weren't asking for it. But that's the blessing of being a part of a community like this. Someone else will see that we are suffering, and someone else will answer the call to respond and offer us compassion, and it will make the world a difference. And sometimes when we're doing okay, we need to extend a healing hand, and sometimes, like I said, we need to accept one. Sometimes we're called to be like Jesus, the healer, and sometimes when our own backs are tired and bent low beneath the pain, we're called to take the hand that is extended to us, to rise up, to stand tall once again, and to live into wholeness and healing, even when it surprises us. Sometimes we're called to rail against the powers that be. But all the while, we're not ever to give up extending a hand of helping and healing to our neighbor. And sometimes we don't rail against the powers that be, quite frankly, because we haven't got a clue of the real cause of another person's suffering. And so sometimes the most faithful thing is just to help somebody right under our nose that we know needs it. And just offer human touch and dignity. And thanks be to God, that's enough. May we be faithful in each moment, wise to what is going on in the world and sensitive to those right under our noses. And may we have the courage to respond faithfully. Amen.